0: Hey everyone, welcome to, uh, and especially Lily, welcome to Designers in Nature uh, talking business.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So for those who don't know, uh, Lily is actually the MBA LM and she's also a service designer, uh, facilitator and innovation coach. Did I get this right? Yes, yes. <laughs> so you're working as a freelancer? Yes. Uh, I will go and talk more about this uh, today, I guess. But there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is you're also founder of something called IMA Collective, right?
1: Yeah. Can you tell us
0: more about IMA?
1: It's it's a collective of experts in the field of climate adaptation. And climate adaptation is not about reducing emission or getting us to net zero, but -hmm. actually helping us prepare for the consequences of the climate crisis. So the increased water scarcity or disasters and extreme weather events, or migration. So we really focus on what are the impacts and how can we help people and organizations better prepare and adapt to them.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Is, is there any public projects? Oh, let me show you I have a doggo here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it looks like I on a dog's uh, playing ground. Um, is there any projects that you've already done that maybe you can share? yes
1: so i worked a bit with students and so we looked at uh, how can we help people better prepare for extreme bed events and then one of the first projects that i really focused on is actually how can we help people build financial resilience because Mm -hmm. all those impacts have an immediate impact on our wallets and so how can we actually help um, people be better prepared for financial shocks because we already saw it with the pandemic now inflation yeah. energy crisis so um sometimes climate adaptation feels like a vitamin problem so something yeah. that is currently not kind of we don't have a, a like a headache um but actually when it comes to our finances it's, it's already a painkiller problem so i'm i started with this one
0: I, I think everybody wants to hear like how do you become financially resilient <laughs>
1: Yeah, there are multiple things. I think to some extent, financial institutions didn't really help us to become uh, fully financial resilient. Because yeah. of course they get money from selling us credit cards, loans, and we have no, um, recent things that maybe they now pay now, pay, buy, buy now, pay later. So such mm. as Klarna, but they're actually just a bit exab- exacerbating the kind of cash flow issue. And so mm. for us, what we can actually do is one, build an emergency fund. So for mm. tough times, but also, um, using a concept called sinking funds. So regularly putting aside money for like um, expected expenses such as insurances and something so we don't need to kind of you know look for them when a bill comes or an unexpected bill and then of course based on the financial means financial resilience can mean different things if you are better off it might be really looking at your diversification strategy Mm. of your assets Mm. and so there are like multiple aspects that financial resilience actually
0: entails yeah, there's, there's many, but I think you touched upon the biggest one, which is just having some emergency fund. And I've heard, I've, I've read different... Uh, huh. There's just this different advice on how big this emergency fund needs to be. Some people yeah. say three months, some people say six months. At the end of the day, I think it's important that you have enough... I mean, if you're just starting out, you can't have three months right away. But three months is kind of, I think, a, a good starting point for this uh to have for unexpected um expenses but also if you lose a job and so on.
1: Yes, absolutely. Or even if you really really struggle, start with one and especially if you yes. have debt or high interest debt, then it should yeah. have like one month of emergency fund and then paying back the high interest debt. It's not like, yeah, first so that it doesn't kind yeah. of
0: snowball. High interest debt is the worst. So if you have this, definitely get it uh paid off first. Um But okay, I think we can already see in your background that you've chosen a really beautiful nature for this chat. Can you tell us where you're at?
1: Yeah, I'm actually at my parents' place in South Tyrol. So that's the Italian Alps. And Mm. I grew up on this remote mountain farm and to go to school, I needed to wear a head torch and cross the forest. So it's really,
0: really more remote. That's so nice. I mean, it sounds so romantic, but was it romantic when you actually had to do it? No, 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 absolutely <laughs> not. I was envisioning
1: like, no, like kind of bridges because one of my best friends lived actually across uh, the valley and mm-hmm. I have done everything in my life to escape this place. So I actually moved to London, which was the complete opposite the to this opposite. place. And now I've chosen a bit of a middle ground, which usually, usually I'm based in Verona, Italy. So I'm having, yeah, so m- mid-sized city. Yeah, still nice. close to my parents' place. So I can visit for the weekend.
0: I mean, it looks amazing. Can you show us a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So, yeah. So, what's the altitude there?
1: It's 1,400 meters.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. Nice, nice. Alrighty. So, now that when we know where you are, tell us yeah. a little bit more about what story and what concept you chose to tell us about. So, um, this is Designers in Nature Talking Business. So, you chose one business concept. Tell us more yeah. about it.
1: So I chose to talk about uh, the business concept of opportunity costs, um, mm. which now is an economic term for like the estimated impact of choosing one option um, instead of another one.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but I think maybe to bring this to life, it might be easier to just tell you a story of which in like a moment in my life in which I not just understood the concept, but I really <laughs> felt the concept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so let's move back in time so i it was like 2015 um Mm -hmm. and i've been working for five years uh in the innovation space as a project manager and i constantly ask myself of how can we make things better because sometimes we build digital products or platforms but uh, we didn't get that much um, adoption from our users and so Mm -hmm. I discovered uh, the world of design and particularly service design Mm -hmm. Um, and when I found it it was like ah this is what I want to do and so uh, but it was a bit hard because actually it was not known at all in Italy Um, I knew nobody who was doing this job and so I initially just started learning by myself reading books going to conferences and trying to actually prototype some tiny workshops with friends Um, and then but at a certain point i really wanted to implement it at work but it was very very hard and also i didn't have mentors or people that i could look look up to or Mm -hmm. even have a position in that space and i also didn't have the credentials to get a Mm -hmm. job in an agency because i really wanted to work in an agency because of the diversity of the sectors and the things that i could see and mm. so I remember this one evening in which I was like, I'm not getting further with this, with my goal. So what can I do? And so I sat down with a glass of wine, as you would do in Italy. And um, <laughs> and some pasta. Drew- yeah, <laughs> probably. And uh, drew like three timelines. And th- I had identified three options. And the first option was a bit like, I just could kind of continue with this kind of self-taught mode in which I was just l- try to implement it at work um, and be quite slow in it. Um, mm-hmm. I found a, a master that was only being a part-time master during the weekend, and um, mm-hmm. learning how to use service design. And I found a master that was like a full-time one year in, in Milan at the Politecnico,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which actually cool. was the, the most expensive option. And so But I think instead of writing pros and cons, I just drew that timeline and I was thinking if I choose like the different options, where would I be in one year? Mm -hmm. And so whilst the first two options actually had like, I wouldn't be probably in the same job as now, um, so I didn't find them appealing. And so the third option was actually, if I do this, I have no clue where I will be next year. And mm-hmm. so that was really exciting, um, but also scary at the same time because, of course, when I then evaluated that option, I understood that that was actually the most expensive option. Not just because it had a high tuition fee and also I needed, at least during the time of the master, move to Milan mm-hmm. um, or find a flat there, which is an expensive city. But also, there was this hidden cost that I have not considered, which was actually missing out on a salary for an entire year. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, no, a bit of the opportunity cost, because probably all the other options had, I still would have the salary, I would just do the thing at the side. And so... Maybe no, let's make up some numbers, so if the last the last option would cost like effectively for tuition and also like traveling all extra costs might be like twenty k, mm-hmm. it had an additional i don't know forty k of my salary, mm. so this whole master would cost me sixty k yeah. and so i when I realized it during the when I did the master, then I really chose it because i thought uh, let's 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 take this risk um mm-hmm but the thing is i i behaved very differently compared to maybe other students in the master who have mm-hmm. never been in the in a job because i was really like insisting on getting a good internship um trying to already find um like side jobs at the side yeah. um plus also you no know, kind of prototyping first workshops that i could potentially sell uh-huh. um, to clients so yeah or writing about my work which actually then helped me i wrote one article and that Mm -hmm. helped me land then a job in in london at an agency so how did did that work so the this interesting thing because i was i needed really to budget during this master to make it my meat like my ends meet and so i I didn't rent out an um, entire room, but I uh, I actually found it was cheaper to um, basically use Airbnb, but uh, mm-hmm. not the private apartment, but the shared, just the room, no? And mm-hmm. so during this six months of we, where we had class, every week I would change host and home. Oh,
0: wow. And so <laughs>
1: that was... Quite an experiment in terms of empathy. And I wrote an article about this. And Mm -hmm. that got some attention because it was quite a crazy experiment. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so a headhunter from London contacted me and said, are you available for for some work in London or Mm. to move to London? Mm. Um, And I said, I'm still doing the master, but I will finish in September. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, he contacted me in september um and then within a week i actually had a job in london um and and the thing also about this job was that i accepted a bit the first opportunity because there weren't that many in italy and so i wasn't very picky and i just i thought okay this is my chance this is my ticket Mm. and and i also did like not a really good job in negotiating my salary actually (laughs) none at all and so i remember being um just one week before moving to London, I turned thirty, um, mm-hmm. and I felt the biggest loser ever, in the sense that I felt I haven't achieved anything. I just finished studying. I I had not negotiated a good job or kind of needed to really understand how to make things work in London, which was even more exp- expensive than Milan. Okay. And and so, so even though but, you
0: even though you kind yeah. of achieved your goal, which was like a year before, a few months before, you said. I want to take this uh, program because I want to get a job uh, as a designer. And Then you got the job. You felt like a loser. But like, why?
1: Yeah, I think it was a bit like uh, I got the job, but it was like, I think a bit of um, a combination of things because it was also when I turned 30 the day before my younger sister got married and it felt like, no, she's been like, you compare yourself sometimes. Yeah, and I felt like time. I really started. I didn't do this. I had basically the salary was an entry level, although I had like, really experience in this innovation space. But um, what I then did, and I think that was a really good lesson for me, is like, I said, okay, let me, because um, the salary is not, and I didn't really negotiate, and I really was like ruminating on it. And so I said, I had a, I wrote this, work your ass off somewhere on a post-it note in my room, like in London. Mm -hmm. And then for three, four months, I really worked super hard to demonstrate my value. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to my boss and I said, listen, I really like it here. I really mm-hmm. like the job that I'm doing, but I'm struggling to actually give uh, um, 100% because I know and I realized once I moved to London that I was, was definitely undervalued and underpaid. Mm-hmm. And so can we review my salary? Because I, I want to stay here, but I really struggle to motivate myself. And I, mm-hmm. I think I also demonstrated to you that I, I bring a lot of value. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a lot of transferable expertise and experiences from my previous work as a project manager, and so they actually raised my salary for I got an increase of fifty percent, which was like wow, I mm. didn't expect that and so also no that was then probably understanding that it was then. I also was able to know really calculate the return on investment compared Mm -hmm. to the opportunity cost that I made in terms of investing like one year of like training and, and becoming a service designer. And then seeing like how does it impact my salary because probably if I stayed in the job that salary would have stayed more or less the same. Uh, right. it wouldn't have changed so dramatically and probably even more No, after gaining more experience in this field i can definitely say that in terms of return of investment the thing paid off um mm-hmm. but yeah i think that's also no estimating opportunity cost is sometimes not so so easy you do you need to do a bit of a guesstimate and, yeah. and then see how things play
0: out one of those things when you hear about opportunity costs, it feels like it's a mathematical concept because you can assign a financial value to a missed opportunity. Uh, but it's like many other business things where actually the monetary value is, you don't know exactly what it is, but you can just kind of estimate it. And that kind of gives you just the sense of which is it big, is it medium, or is it low? And even this is enough to take a decision. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is becoming much more than just uh, opportunity cost chat. We're talking about negotiations and so on. So I hope this also motivates someone to go uh, and talk to their uh, boss about uh, renegotiating salary. But I want to ask you about the opportunity costs. So we kind of now laid the foundation of what it is and uh, how it affected you with this decision. But since... I like what you said in the beginning, which is you kind of know and understand the concept only when you kind of live through it. Because when you read about it, it's just like so, yeah. it's almost like theory. But once you live through it, you kind of really understand it. So, what I want to hear is once you really understood it and felt it, so opportunity costs, how did it translate to your work? You know, as a designer, yeah. how does it work, impact your project?
1: Definitely. It shows up so many times in our work in the sense that, no, like, like we, like as a person, also businesses, they have just limited time, money or people available resources. And so what you need to do is really make those strategic choices in what, what do you invest your time, resource and money in? And so, um, constantly when you do this as a designer, it sometimes could be about, no, what value proposition do you take forward? Um, what kind of no, what concept do you move forward? Uh, even what no, in what market segments are you designing for? So, Mm -hmm. um, for example, and understanding this is, is key, but I think also it ties in a bit to like, what is, what is the strategy that the company has? What are their Mm -hmm. business goals? Mm -hmm. Because, um, to make those choices, you need to understand, um, what options are actually delivering the greatest value. Or having the best best return, mm-hmm. and so I think um, also a concrete way of how designers can do this is like we might not have the full picture um, within mm-hmm. the organization because we might just look at how can we improve the experience, um, no, or for the customers, or even from for the employees. Um, but what we can ask, we are really good at asking questions. Mm-hmm. So I think when we speak with um, stakeholders or decision makers, we could ask them, no, if you would have an extra. I don't know 10 or 100k um, where would you invest it that delivers the biggest value or um, if no if we are in a business and we have just a few months of cash left um, what how would you spend no, your time and resources and what When what would you spend them on mm-hmm. so you could identify know what their perspective is on those elements that have the biggest um, the biggest leverage point uh, mm. because there is we can't invest and improve everything. So we need to very carefully choose.
0: That's a cool approach. Uh, I'll share another one. So what we do a lot of times when we are suggesting things, we are just saying what we're saying yes to. And imagine maybe when you're just doing your project, you could have a last slide where you actually also do uh, and say what you're saying no to. You know, yeah. So like, hey, by saying yes to this thing, we're saying no to many other things. And then just also making it very visible for decision makers what we are uh, not going to do if we do this thing, uh, because sometimes they're just also afraid of making a decision because they don't know what else they could have done with this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That that's um, that's a, such a great point. And I think uh, another aspect I think is very important now is um, the importance of customers. And I think that's very core to design um, on understanding the customer and designing for them because a business exists only as long as we have customers. Mm. And so um, really like understanding how can we drive and deliver more value to them is a key aspect that designers can do. And so also um, to give maybe a concrete example, uh, I was working on a project in which... um, in which the company has invested some money in doing uh, market research. And so the market research helped help them understand like who is their customers and what are the different segments that they have? And also what is the percentage of those segments? No, let's say they have uh, one, two, three segments and they decided then to pick um, one or two. But then um, we designers were actually tasked to better understand why they use our service and how they use it so we did user research because um, that really helped us to to understand those questions and so by by doing that we really understood that it doesn't make so much sense to know if, may do the choice that they made to focus on segment one and three but actually segment one and two would be much better because um because we actually could capture more mar- market value by designing one service that fits Two needs because segment three had very different needs and needed a different app almost or experience, Mm. and so that was also a way of how we then as designers could just needed to calculate a bit like um, no by having those numbers from the market research we could estimate like uh, what is the market share that we are leaving out and what makes more sense and also what no how much what would be the estimate of developing certain features that work for a certain segment. That's cool. If you if you have like segments that have opposing needs and need opposing features, then you need to develop many, many more features. And that's a lot of more yeah. money, time and resources.
0: And how did you get these numbers? Who did it, Who did you talk to?
1: So um, basically they, they, they uh, had a market research company who really like um, surveyed a large number of uh, population to then define the segments. And then we did a bit of a, a smaller qualitative study in mm. terms of, understanding really uh, their experience and mapping it out and what what they also define as success criteria, no? of mm-hmm. what, what a successful experience looks like. And then we, we validated that again with kind of a quantitative survey to really prioritize um, their jobs to be done, so their needs, and to put things together. Um, but I think to make this very compelling to decision makers, you really need to translate you know what we do as designers to the impact that it has on the business. Yeah, or right. the potential
0: impact, and it goes back to this thing that actually we don't ha- need to have all these answers. We need like good questions, yeah. and once we have these questions, we can also um, just get these numbers. Uh, let's go to the final part. I have one uh, last question about the uh, buzzwords. You know, what's what's your least and or most favorite business buzzword uh, that you hear in the business or design communities?
1: I would say a least favorite is actually MVP, so Minimal Bio- Viable Product, because it's we classic. use it all the time, um, but everybody has a different understanding of what it actually means. Mm. And so I think as a designer, I always like to ask the question, so what do you mean by it? And ask every single one person to really like, help me understand what they mean by it sometimes it's just a kind of um it almost means like a concept that you test Mm -hmm. or like no a kind of fake door test and for others it actually is like a fully built um thing um or even like now when we were developing a new um financial product some were like is real money involved or not so kind of really defining it because otherwise you constantly see it and it's also Mm. it often shows up in OKRs or no objective that you need to deliver an MVP but then um, if we don't show examples that's another way of like apart from asking questions like give me an example or show me an example of how this should look like to really make it concrete and tangible
0: that's a really good point because when we talk about MVPs probably every person in the room has a different understanding of what that minimum actually means uh yes. yeah as you said is money involved is something else involved like what are we t- really trying to prove and that's the point i think which is like what are we trying to prove with the mvp like what is the assumption behind this product that the mvp should prove or disprove um and and by actually defining the assumption i think we are just making it much more clear what the mvp needs to do in a way
1: yeah um, absolutely yeah
0: Cool, Lily. Thanks a lot for uh, taking the time showing us your beautiful, um, should I call it hometown or home village or, I mean, it's, yeah. it looks amazing.
1: <laughs> it's, it's just very tiny village.
0: Yeah. Home tiny village. <laughs> I mean, as, as much as you said you didn't like growing up there, I, I guess now you enjoy going back, right? Yes, I think there is always a bit kind of um,
1: a conflicting part of me that really enjoys spending some time there. But then I'm like really happy also like to leave. And I'm even more happy that now we can work remotely. And so having the chance to work from here, but still like, you know, be connected to people in in different parts of the world is such a privilege.
0: Exactly. Just like we are right now. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks, Lily. Have a very beautiful day. Thank you so much. Likewise. See you in the community. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.